Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Kia ora, I'm William Ray, the host of RNZ's Black Sheep, a podcast all about the villainous and mysterious figures from New Zealand history, like the supposed backyard death ray inventor, Victor Penny. He had the blueprints for lasers and radar very early on in the piece, and he was on the right track. The truth of the matter is still to come out. Or the homosexual mayor who shot his blackmailer. We were only a foot or two apart. I think he said, this is for you. Then he fired. You can find Black Sheep on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you found this podcast. The Happy Pod is a special weekly episode from the Global News Podcast, bringing you positive stories and uplifting interviews from around the world. Thousands of lives are being saved by bandages that can stop heavy bleeding in less than a minute. It's there to save lives. It's great to go to bed at night knowing that we can help. Listen now by searching for the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so um, this is the anthology suite. Um, so if you just follow me. Thank you. This is Discovery from the BBC, with me, James Gallagher. Take a seat on the chair for me there. So this is room three. This is where you'll be producing your sample today. I'll be doing a test that's both intimate and, I'll be honest, intimidating. So can I just please firstly get you to confirm which test you're here for today? Semen analysis. Yeah, we're talking sperm counts and whether they're falling. Just a couple of things to note on the form. You will need to confirm whether you've had a fever in the last three months. I have not. Perfect. Um, You will need to state your abstinence, which should be between two and five days. It is between two and five. Perfect. This is the specimen pot. Once you're done producing your sample, just pop it into the clear specimen bag there and then you can give us a call. Thank you very much. So I'll leave you to it, and don't forget to lock the door behind you. Thank you, that's a good tip. Hello. Hi. Hello. How are you? All done. Good. Right, so um, if I could just take your sample... So time of production, I'll just pop that on there. And did you manage to get the entire sample into the container? Yes, I did. Okay, I'll show you the way out when you're ready. I'm ready. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you very much. Take care. We'll find out my results in a moment, because today we're investigating what's happening to our sperm and whether it's getting harder to have children. Professor Cheryl Homer from the Fertility Clinic is going to do the analysis. But first, we're joined by a couple that she's helped. Susanna Richard, take me back. When did you first start thinking about having children? Richard says, I've been thinking about it. Given our age, why don't we both just go and get tested? Because if there are any challenges, then it'd be good to know, because then we can get them addressed. So we were trying to be proactive about it, I think. And Richard, what were the results for you when they came back? So I remember where it was, actually. I was walking to the car, and it was Professor Homer. She said, oh, I've got your results, and um, there's some good news and some not-so-great news. And I was like, okay, you know, and it was that awful. Suddenly, I didn't turn the ignition on in the car, and I was like, well, what's the not-good news? She told me my count was no, my mortality wasn't that great. And she explained everything in great detail. 
I was like, this is not what I was expecting. And my mind started racing and I messaged Suzanne. And Suzanne, what was going through your head at that moment? I kind of feel punched in the stomach. I just remember that my stomach lurching, my heart dropping. They said it's so low that there's always zero chance of you conceiving. And that only chance would be through IBF, but that was very slim. This is not what I wanted to hear, you know, having had that conversation with Suzanne, having realised I'd met the love of my life and I wanted to have a family and we, and we were that little bit older. Did you really feel the burden of that? Yeah, I did. And I think as a man, we all think we're a bit of a stud and, you know, we all spend our youth trying not to get anyone pregnant and everything. And then actually it doesn't always mean that you can get someone pregnant because you might have an, an underlying problem that you are not aware of. And I thought, as a man, well, what can I do? We're going to hear from Suzanne and Richard again shortly. But for now, Professor Cheryl Homer from Andrology Solutions has come into the studio. So we're investigating whether sperm counts are falling. And Cheryl, you've got my results. Shall we go through them? Sure, I'm delighted to do that. So from a sperm point of view, the three main things we're looking at is the count. Which so that's obviously, just the, the total number. Funnily enough... You'd think it was just the total number, mm. but it's the parameter that seems to be more related to your fertility for some reason is the count per milliliter of ejaculate. Okay, so like the concentration. The concentration, exactly. And your concentration is borderline. Oh. It's not what we would call low, but it's borderline on the either. lower end yeah. of normal. Mm. We also report the total count as well which is the total number of sperm in the entire ejaculate. And that was also borderline. Mm. So what that immediately tells me is that your testes might be not functioning 100% because that's where your sperm are made. They're going okay, but they could be doing better. Now, this isn't crushing me because I've had my children. And, yes. and so, so kind of like, but I, I can imagine that you would have conversations where this yes. is really relevant to people's lives. So when you have a borderline count, the thing about sperm parameters is that they aren't a sort of cliff edge where mm. you have a reference value. And if you're at that level or above, everything's fine. And if you're below it, it's a disaster and you're infertile. It doesn't work like that because a lot of people have sperm counts that are below the reference range and are perfectly normally fertile. And then there are a lot of people who have counts in the normal range and they can't get their partners pregnant. So I think we have to get it into proportion. Hmm. Don't panic. <laughs> but <laughs> Thank um, you. I, I think it is very important that if we start to see something that's a little bit borderline or not quite right, we need to start asking questions. Why is it that the testes aren't functioning 100%? Now, are you looking at things in my life that I might be doing that could be the reason for that? Or can I go like I'm in the twilight of my 30s now? I'm not 18 anymore. Does that have an impact? So I think age does have an impact. There are some papers that have reported that semen quality can decline with age. I don't think 30 years old would be considered the point at which we would expect to see things deteriorating well, at twilight that. of 30s not, mm, i wish it was no 30. <laughs> absolutely not and i mean theoretically men should be fertile their entire yeah. lives I see plenty of cases where that definitely happens late into old age exactly. rock stardom but i think if i were to be presented with a person who was having difficulties conceiving 
I wouldn't want to put this on the back burner. I'd want to know why. With this one in particular, with the count, hmm. you need to be very scientific about this and say, what is causing this? And there could be a lot of things that are causing this. Yes, of course, your lifestyle is important and it is a factor, but it's rarely the sole problem. So when you're looking at me and those results, what are yes. you thinking? Well, first of all, one of the things that's really important about a semen analysis is that it is a marker of your general health. If you are unwell, one of the first things that happens is your fertility starts to decline. Certainly infections can have an impact, particularly if they raise um, temperature in the body. Mm. So high temperature would also be a potential cause of a low sperm count, which is why, you know, you read a lot in the media about wearing cotton boxer shorts because you don't want to wear tight underwear to heat your testes up. You don't want... Laptops on your lap. Laptops yeah. on your lap. Cycling, which I know that you do. I do. Not everybody is affected mm. by these things. But if you are heating up your testes, depending on your physiology, it can possibly affect your sperm. Because, of course, why are your testes outside your body? Because they need to be a little bit cooler. That's right. So even just heating them up a couple of degrees causes potentially a huge problem for sperm development. Do you know what the leading known cause of male infertility is? I don't. So strangely enough, a lot of people think it's lifestyle, but it isn't. What is it? The leading known cause is varicocele. I don't know what that is. So that is literally, it's like a clump of varicose veins in the testes. And what it does is it impairs blood flow in the testes. So you get an engorgement of blood from the body, which is at 37 degrees, and it heats the testes up, which should be at 33 to 34 degrees. So it heats the testes up to 37, and it causes a lot of heat damage. So we're aware that heat damage impairs sperm, but when you have a And here's a the body doing seal, it to itself. That's yeah. it. Oh, so do you like to come out? Well, as you can hear, Richard and Suzanne's story had a happy ending. You're a little chatty chappy, aren't you? So how did they get there? I read everything and I found out through Sharon as well that it not has to do with the temperature of your testicles and at the time my lifestyle was very healthy so I had not huge worries there but I was consuming a lot of coffee I was biking a lot then I thought okay well what are we going to do and I saw putting peas on your testicles was a great thing so I went and bought some bird's eye peas I was to say I, I, I've put frozen peas on many parts of my body but uh exactly yeah that's a new one. I mean, these peas stayed with us right to when we had Freddie, actually. And I hope they just got binned at the end. They were loyal. Yeah, they did get binned. They weren't cooked and they <laughs> haven't gone into any of his trees. So the peas were there and it was summer. So it was really hot. And I suddenly realised that actually tight boxer shorts are really bad for you. So I changed all my boxer shorts. When did you find out you had a varicocele? I actually did know I had a varicocele. I remember a doctor years ago saying, you know, you should keep an eye on that because you might need to have it operated on in future. But it never changed in shape or size, so I just kind of ignored it, really. What was the varicocele like? Could, was, it, was it something you could notice, something you could see or feel? Yeah, you could see it and you could feel it. Naturally, if I'm honest, it's like a bag of worms with one particular large worm underneath the skin. Suzanne, had you ever heard of a varicocele before? No. It transpired that it was a grade three varicocele, which is quite high grade. And that was contributing to the heating of the testicles. So for the majority of the day, when I didn't have a pair of like ICPs on my testicles, they were actually getting heated. And the fact that 
it's such a major contribution to male infertility. Was it easy to have it removed? Yeah, it was over in a blink of an eye and cut off the blood supply to this particular vein. They insert a spring, which is, looks at he described it as the spring that you find in a pen. And then tell you to lead a normal life. I remember Richard coming home super excited because he felt we'll be back in the game. With a bunch of flowers in one hand and a bag of frozen peas in the other, right? Exactly, James. How long did it take after you had the operation and you're doing all those other things? I was having cold showers. I was jumping in cold plunge pools. There wasn't a thing I didn't try. Suzanne, correct me if I'm wrong. It was just over six months, wasn't it? Just over six months that we conceived naturally. Yay! Yes. Which was pretty special. I wish you many nights full of sleep and rest. Well, thank you, Knowing that you won't get them. (laughs) Well, I'll take the one we've got then. Thank you very much for inviting us. If you do have a varicocele and you have fertility problems, it's present in about 40% of infertile men. You need to get it checked and you need to discuss with your doctor whether you can get it repaired. But it What is... I find fascinating about that, Cheryl, is that is something I have never heard anyone discuss. Exactly. Cheryl, when I did the sample, I had to have abstained from any form of ejaculation for a very set period of time. It had to be at least two days in the clear, but no more Correct. than five. Why Correct. that window? If you have a short period of abstinence, your testes don't have enough time to output more sperm. So when you actually come to produce your sample for analysis, it's too low count. So we need to wait two days for it to recuperate. And what about at the other end? The other end is also very important because sperm don't live forever. You're making sperm. Every time I'm talking to you now, every second you're making a thousand sperm. A thousand? A thousand sperm a second. Can't help looking at my watch as the second antics round. <laughs> but would there be just a, then a load of dead sperm? Exactly. So we need to get it just right. And again, it's important for why people are infertile. A lot of people are not having regular intercourse. They're saving it up for ovulation because they think the more they save it up, the better it is for ovulation. But of course, you're removing about 50% of what you have inside you every time you ejaculate. So you are basically clearing them out so the more often you ejaculate the more you get rid of the dead sperm and the more fresh and alive they will be when you want them to fertilize your partner's eggs there are a couple of other things though that you look into aren't there because it's kind of like it's not just the the sheer number of sperm in there it's kind of like what the individual sperm cells are looking like so it's about what they're looking like and also the way they're moving now your motility the percentage of sperm that are moving looks very good. It's well within the normal range. And they're moving what we say is progressively. They're progressing, they're moving forward, Mm. so they're getting somewhere. The problem is that they're not moving fast. If you look at the comments... Oh, they go forwards, but they put slowly. They're sluggish. So that's one issue that I'm thinking, they're not happy chappies, are Mm. they? And the other thing, too, that's quite telling is the shape of the sperm, the morphology is not great. Yeah, I I saw that headline on the report. and The phrase 98% abnormal is one to terrify anybody. I think a lot of people are absolutely terrified by this and they absolutely focus on this as the main thing. One thing to understand is that morphology is probably the least correlated with your fertility out of all the parameters that we look at. Mm. The other thing is that the reference value is only 4% normal forms. And I when, find that remarkable. Yes. Take any man off the street, the most fertile person yes. you'd, you'd come across, and you'd have like, as long as 4% of your sperm are yes. okay, we think that's normal. But think about it. 
You're producing millions and millions of sperm. Why do you produce millions of sperm? One of the reasons could be that the majority of them are a bit ropey. Are pretty ugly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not able to get in. So when we do the shape analysis, and again, it doesn't mean they're abnormal inside. It doesn't mean they're genetically abnormal. We're talking about just the shape. Mm. So, you know, it's like looking at a car and if it's a bit bashed in, it still, still might drives, be able to yeah. drive. Although I do have to say that there are certain types of morphological defects that we know are associated with genetic abnormalities. And actually, your type of morphological defect can be associated with stress to the testes, including heat damage. How much can you trust a snapshot at one moment in time? Like, how variable mm. is someone's sperm quality? Like, if we did this in six months, would you expect it to be identical? We wouldn't. If you've got a borderline value like this, I would probably say to you, let's just make sure you're not doing anything silly in your lifestyle and let's just recheck it again. And it does take three months for the sperm to recover to anything that you're doing to it. Cheryl, I'm curious, because how many years have you been looking at sperm? Oh gosh, I'm ancient, so at least 30 years. <laughs> but and, and, and you're very much at the sharp end of it, so you're not looking at what's happening to the general public. There's this big debate and argument about whether sperm counts are going down what does your experience tell you i think that there still seems to be a trend for decreasing sperm counts i think from the literature that i've read that appears to be the case professor homer thank you uh, so you're listening to discovery from the bbc now whether sperm counts are actually falling seems like a question we really should have the answer to and yet it is a source of major debate so I'm joined by two people on either side, Professor Alan Pacey from the University of Sheffield in England and Professor Richard Sharp from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So let's try to make this as simple as possible. And Alan, first up, obvious question, are sperm counts falling? I think the case currently is unproven. Richard? On balance, I would say that they are, but I recognise that we can't prove it conclusively one way or another. And Richard, when we say sperm counts are falling, do we mean they're falling for every single person or is it just a small group that are having really big drops in their sperm count and therefore that's bringing down the, the, like, the overall average? The best evidence we've got is that it's a change affecting the whole population, not just a subset. OK, so let, let's try and tease apart why you've both looked at the same evidence and come to slightly, subtly different conclusions. Like, Richard, do you think there is a case? So just describe it for me. A number of studies over the past 15 years or so have all shown that when you analyse sperm counts from men unselected for their fertility status, sperm counts appear to be lower now than they were in the past. And that's based on many thousands of individual men. And when you say um, unselected for their fertility status, that means this is just when you're looking at Joe Public. Absolutely, because if you were focusing on men who had fertility problems, then you would expect that they would have a lower sperm count than the male population. Alan, you look at those same bits of scientific research and don't come to the same conclusion. Though. Well, I see the lines on the graph going down, but what I find really difficult is the fact that over time we've changed our technique. And there's been a lot of emphasis over the last 20 or 30 years to improve our sperm counting or our sperm quality measurement technique. And of course, if we haven't kept our technique the same over time, then you have to ponder whether it's technique rather than biology. I'm not going to lie. The, the moment I, I opened my report and found out that 98% of my sperm were abnormal, I, I, 
I was having a bit of a moment. I think that's perfectly natural, and I've seen many, many hundreds of men that, that have had the same reaction. I think that particular measure of sperm health and assessment of size and shape is so terribly difficult to do. Okay, but if I were to just look at the study that came out towards the end of last year, it was published in Human Reproduction Update, and it was a big study looking across 53 different countries across multiple continents and seemed to come up with this consistent pattern. And the numbers in it feel terrifying, like concentration of sperm falling from 101 million per mil down to 49, so more than halving, total sperm counts falling by 62%. I mean, probably terrifying lots of couples trying to conceive. Yeah, it's scary, but we haven't seen in that graph that people have moved hugely from the normal to the abnormal where we might have clinical concern and that's why for me this is still within the realms of, of measurement error. I would disagree because although I recognise what Alan is saying and there is truth in it, the way that people first came to wanting to measure sperm counts to determine if there had been a fall with time was to do with other aspects of male reproductive health changing for the worse over a similar time period. And the leading such change was in testicular germ cell cancer, which has increased progressively across the board in many countries. And it is a disease of young men, remarkably. So when people then put their focus on sperm count, it was in that context. And Richard, we've heard a lot about varicocele today. It was something that was really new to me. But do we know if that's going up in incidence over time as well? It's a condition that's actually quite poorly diagnosed and not reliably diagnosed in every centre. So you would need very, very good data to actually evaluate whether there had been any change. Well, let me ask a completely different, well, subtly different question then. Are we more concerned about male fertility today than we were 20 or 30 years ago? Richard? I'm concerned because leaving aside whether sperm counts have fallen, the situation that we have today is that in men of reproductive age, there is something like one in five, one in six men, depending on where you live in Northern Europe, who has a sperm count that is low enough to negatively impact their fertility. It doesn't render them completely infertile necessarily, but in a modern context of where couples are only starting to try for a family when they are in their mid-30s, and I'm particularly focusing now on the female partner being in her mid-30s, her fertility is in progressive decline and is already reduced by 30 to 60% compared with in her 20s, early 20s. Combine that with a partner who has a low sperm count, which will mean that it will take him longer to impregnate his partner than if he had a higher sperm count. That's a recipe for increasing infertility because time isn't on their side. Alan, do you share that analysis? I do. We should absolutely be concerned because the example that Richard gave about increasing incidence of testicular cancer, the data is really clear and there's no way that you can argue your way out of that one and that concerns me greatly. So it suggests that something is happening to the testis or the developing testis to mean that in older adult life there are more likely to be fertility concerns. Whether that manifests itself in dramatic changes in sperm count, 
I don't think is the important question because of all of the reasons that I think that that data is is difficult to understand. The ageing stuff's really important, uh, but I want to slightly put it to one side because that, that, that's people's choice and well, often guided by society, so it's not always a choice. But I, I'm just slightly more interested in the whether there are environmental factors or the things that we are either doing to our own bodies or are being done to our bodies that are affecting our fertility. It depends at what point those things are being done. Adult men, couples interested in their fertility, always focus on the question about what they are doing now and what they can change now in their lives. And actually, the evidence suggests that there's actually very little in terms of lifestyle influences on adult fertility. Where it gets more interesting and where I'm going to hand over to Richard because he's done more work in this area are potential exposures of the fetus before the male was born being a really sensitive part of that process. So, Richard, when I'm thinking about my fertility, do I really need to be thinking about what my mum was doing, you know, 30 plus years ago? There does appear to be that. And of course, there's nothing that you can do about that in retrospect. So the best evidence that we have is that there is a critical period during early fetal development. So when the fetus is tiny, just a few centimetres long, that the fetal testes at that time start to produce testosterone, the male sex hormone, and it's that that brings about the masculinization of the body, otherwise it would develop as a, as a female. And it's that process that appears or may be going wrong. And we know that if it does go wrong, then it results in a cascade of changes which can increase the risk of having one or more male reproductive disorders later in life. And potentially sperm count reduced fertility in adulthood, although that is the one that's the most difficult to study. Of course, if we're talking about consequences in terms of sperm count in adulthood, we've got to wait 20 or more years before we see what has happened. Yeah, you so could that's... start the study, Richard, then your grandkids could finish it off. Best of luck with trying to get funding for mm. that. I read a lot as well about kind of like endocrine disruptors, kind of like the, the fact that we live in a far more chemical world and it's those things that are getting inside our bodies and affecting fertility. I think the jury is very much out on that. The majority of the people who work on this are absolutely sold on this being the case. I am far from convinced. In fact, I've become less and less convinced as time has gone by. I can't help but be struck, though, by it feels like the consequences of not knowing the answer to this are huge. Like, if sperm counts are falling as precipitously as some of these studies claim, and that was projected out into the future, a journalist like me would be forgiven for writing end-of-human-race-type headline. Do we need to know the answer to whether sperm counts are falling? That's a really good question. I would like to know the answer because I think it would give one more element of evidence to whether male reproductive health is under the level of crisis that we think, but arguably we might be able to answer that question through other means. So fertility rates, disorders of the male reproductive system, such as testicular cancer, we could look at how the uptake of assisted reproduction is around the world. So there are big, big, massive, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data that doesn't rely on the sperm count that are proxies of male fertility, and, and we could be doing more with those. I agree. And, and we can never go back in time and check sperm counts from the past using modern techniques. So I think that it, to some extent, 
it's a question that we are always going to be debating and never completely resolve. Richard Sharp, Alan Pacey, thank you so much for coming on the programme. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks as well to Professor Homer and especially to Suzanne, Richard and baby Freddie. The debate around sperm counts is going to continue to rage, but I think male fertility is something we all need to be paying more attention to. So thank you for listening to this edition of Discovery from the BBC. I'm James Gallagher and the producer was Erica Wright. I love the idea of a weekly happy news episode. Fundamentally, the good outweighs the bad in the world and a happy pod would help everyone remember that. Well, our listeners have spoken and we have listened. Every Saturday, the global news podcast from the BBC World Service is bringing you a special weekly episode, The Happy Pod, exploring global news stories that make us feel, well, happy. From the French adventurer who sailed around the world with a rather unique crewmate. I met Monique in the Canaries Island and uh, we fell in love together, so she jumped on board. (laughs) I should probably mention that Monique is a chicken. Yeah, exactly. To the recent UN agreement, promising to do more to protect the world's oceans. It's half of the surface of our planet, and it's two-thirds of the ocean that are going to be impacted by this new agreement. We're sharing positive stories from around the world. That's The Happy Pod. Find it by searching for the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service, wherever you get your podcasts.